Hello and welcome to Capital Cast. I'm Jerry Nowicki, and today we're talking to the Chief Justice of the Illinois Supreme Court. This week, history was made on Illinois' High Court, which has seen monumental change and drastic growth in diversity since December 1st. As of Monday, the court has a 5-2 female majority, and as of December 1st, it includes three African-American members, the most of any point in the court's history. It also has its fourth-ever female chief, as Justice Mary Jane Tice was sworn into that role in October before her ceremonial swearing-in in Springfield on November 14th. The Democrat from Cook County has served on the high court since 2010. Although if she's listening, the new chief is probably not happy that I've identified her by her party. There is no partisanship, unless you want to say sports partisanship. That is not my experience of how I deal with Lisa Holder-White. Lisa Holder-White um, is, um, ran as a Republican for the uh, appellate court. I've known her for 35 years. She and I have been involved in... Um, uh, judicial education. Uh, I've been very deeply involved in judicial education my entire career for 39 years, but for a long time she has too. When I learned that she was running, or she had been, she was going to be on the appellate court and she was going to have to run for that position, I had no idea what party she had been elected from. It just never came up. I mean, I'm telling you, this is someone I've worked with how many hours of my life have I spent with her working on projects? I had no idea if she was a Democrat or a Republican. That quote comes from an interview I had with Chief Justice Tice one day after her ceremonial swearing-in last month in the Supreme Court chamber. We covered a wide range of topics, from the court's legitimacy and her view on partisan campaigns, to the unique living quarters that justices in Illinois occupy when in Springfield for deliberations. Lisa Holder-White, the justice she mentioned, became Tice's colleague and the first black woman ever seated on the high court in July. I'll play more from my conversation with Tice shortly, but first, a little history on the new chief and the court she will oversee. She ascended to the court's top spot via a long-established seniority process which gives the chief justice role to the longest tenured justice who has not yet held the post. She follows as chief, Justice Anne M. Burke, who retired this year and was replaced by Justice Joy V. Cunningham, the second black woman ever named to the high court. Cunningham was sworn in December 1st, followed shortly by Justices Mary Kay O'Brien and Elizabeth Rochford, two Democrats who each won their elections in November. Those five women make up a historic first for the court, which has also reached its high watermark for African-American justices. Holder White and Cunningham joined Justice Scott Neville, who assumed office in 2018. The other justice I haven't mentioned is David K. Overstreet, a Southern Illinois Republican who is also fairly new to the high court. He was sworn in December 3, 2020. The court's newfound diversity was the first thing Justice Tice and I discussed on November 15th. All right, well, thank you very much for your time this morning. I, this afternoon, I should say, <laughs> but it all kind of blends into one. We had five oral arguments today. Believe me, the day is blurry to me. <laughs> So I kind of wanted to start off with this. You're going to be presiding over a very historic court come next month. Um, the uh, five to two a majority female court. I guess, how can you characterize 
how much different that's going to look than when you got into law. Well, revolutionary. Uh, you know, at the time, unthinkable that such a thing could occur. Um, in my life story, um, I, I'm not uh, a uh, trailblazer. I'm not uh, Marianne McMorrow, who was the first woman on our court. Um, I came into the legal profession at a time when other women were uh, beginning their uh, their journey in the law. Here's just a statistic, for example. My husband's a year ahead of me in law school. In his class, there were five women. In my class, there are 35. Now today, law school classes are about 50, almost 51% women. So the numbers have changed dramatically even from my time. But there I was, right at the cusp when more and more women were entering the profession. Um, however, as my career went along, uh, when I became a public defender and I would be in the uh, courtrooms in uh, the Circuit Court in Cook County, um, there were three women in the entire uh, criminal uh, court system, two women who were state's attorney and I was a public defender. There just weren't other women uh, practicing law with me. Um, to say I was the only woman in the room is absolutely true for a very long time in my career, even when I went on the bench. There were very, very few women. But there were some, and um, as we moved along, uh, there were many more behind me. Um, to think that now, uh, in, in a month or so, there will be five women on this court is, um, it, I'm not sure what it's going to look like or how, um, uh, how different it's going to be. But we know that if, when we look at the pictures through the years of what this court looked like, it didn't look like that. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So then what does it mean for, the, for representation for the people of Illinois to see that on their high court? It means a number of things. Uh, first of all, um, we've talked a great deal about diversity. What does that mean? And it's my experience, uh, and my experience specifically on a judge, that when there are people with different backgrounds and different life experiences, they bring something to the table. They enrich the discussion. They enrich the opinions that we make. Gender diversity is the same thing. We're going to be bringing uh, different life experiences that weren't present before uh, in these numbers on this court. There will be some effect. What, how it will play out in the cases, we have no idea at this point. But we have to just acknowledge that, that diversity in and of itself, including gender diversity, uh, enriches, in, in my view, enriches the, the uh, judicial process. But clearly it's a symbol uh, to the people of the state of Illinois, uh, of the value of women, of the voices of women. Um, hopefully it's inspirational to both young men and women uh, about what their careers can be and what it could look like. We are the state of Myra Bradwell. And at some point, uh, I want to spend more time talking about Myra Bradwell, maybe not today, <laughs> but I think uh, uh, this is a place where we're going to do a lot of work about that to try to explain to Illinois that at one point we were the um, place that was uh, the, the state that uh, uh, had uh, this uh, case of this woman in which uh, the law was very clearly defined by the Supreme Court that women had no place in a courtroom. Um, it's come a long, I don't mean to say that, I mean, just, it's, things have evolved, and we're going to talk a lot about Myra Bradwell in the future. But generally, the face is going to be different, and um, 
how that's going to play out, uh, I really can't predict yet. And and there's other uh, aspects in in which the course is diversifying as well. With I think there will be three African American justices as well. Yes, very very important to talk about that too. Um, it wasn't that long ago when Charles Freeman was the first African American on this court. He joined the court in 1990, but he was the only African American uh, up until um, am I right about this 20. 18, I think that's right. And then uh, Scott Neville joined this court. So there was still just one African-American on the court. Suddenly, uh, we're now going to have three out of four people be people of color. Um, it says something about our state and something about our court um, that um, we've evolved to such a place that we can have that diversity. So here it's important to note that Latino advocacy groups, such as the Puerto Rican Bar Association and the Illinois Latino Agenda, have continued to call on the High Court to add Latino voices to its ranks and to the appellate courts below it when vacancies arise. While Illinois is 18% Latino, they note, there's just one Latino appellate justice and none have ever served on the High Court. It's not something Tice and I directly discussed, although you did hear her mention how important she believes diversity is to the court's performance. The recent swing to a more diversified court has yielded another oddity for the forthcoming term. That's the fact that four of the seven justices, Holder White, Cunningham, Rochford, and O'Brien, all have served six months or less on the court at the time of this podcast. Here's what Justice Tice had to say about that. And so one of the, one of the other things I noticed about the makeup of the court, it looks like, if, if I'm counting correctly, maybe four justices will be having served for less than a year um, come December. What challenges is that going to present for you as a Chief Justice? Innumerable. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, there's just, you know, four new people starting a new job. Uh, we have to really... Uh, you know, spend some time uh, talking together, uh, first of all, just about history and traditions of how the court circulates opinions and real practical things like that. But I'm looking forward to some conversations with the new court as to what they want. Um, just because we've always done things the same way through the years, uh, this is, seems to me a really good time to think about are there um, improvements we can make in efficiency? Are there change practices that we can um, adopt? Um, uh, I'm looking forward to you know new voices, people who worked in other courts. Uh, Justice O'Brien has worked in the um, third district appellate uh, uh, court for a long time. Um, uh, new Justice Rochford is closest to the trial court of any of us. She's been working in the trial courts for a long time. It'd be really interesting to hear from them what they observe about what the court has always been doing and make suggestions on how to do it better. That led us to a conversation about relationships between court members and how a uniquely Illinois institution helps them build a rapport. And that is the court's living situation. First, it's important to note that Illinois' justices come from five districts across the state, three of them from District 1 in Cook County and four others from the remainder of the state. So when the Supreme Court justices gather in Springfield for two weeks stretches five times a year, they live in a quarters provided in the Illinois court building across the street from the Capitol. 
and they dine as a group with the most tenured justice at the head of the table. Here's Justice Tice on what that means for the Illinois Supreme Court. I think one of the things I learned about this court yesterday um, from your speech was there, there, is there a living quarters where in Springfield? Uh, I guess just tell me a little bit more about. That. Well, first of all, um, my understanding is that Illinois is, if not the only, but one of the only states where the Supreme Court members come from uh, districts. In other words, uh, most places the justices come from the whole state. Here under our Constitution, we're elected from different parts of the state. And so therefore, to get our work done, we've all, by definition, have to travel to come to Springfield. Well, yes, you're right, we could rent an apartment someplace, I suppose, but um, uh, this building that we're in today was built in 1908, and when they built it, on the third floor, they built seven um, suites. Um, when I say that, I'm not saying they're so grand. There's an office with a desk and a couch, and that's about all that fits in the room, and a bed, and a side table, and a bathroom, and a closet, um, for each one of the justices. But then, there's a communal dining room. And we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together the entire time we're together. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's a lot of togetherness. It's a lot of time where we're either on the bench here, in the conference room behind that door, uh, we sit in the conference table by seniority, as we do on the bench, and yes, at the dining table, we sit by seniority. Uh, last night was my first night sitting at the head of the table for dinner. Um, but as I said last night, uh, it's not just random. Part of it is just geographic that we're all traveling. but. Um, uh, part of it is inspired by Chief Justice John Marshall, who, in fact, um, at the beginning of our country and at the beginning of our institutions, um, uh, spoke about the importance of developing um, the court as a unit in terms of relationships. And so um, certainly then, back in 1790s, uh, each of the justices were traveling long, long, or we wouldn't think about long distances, but long times to come to Washington, D.C. And so he had them all live together in a boarding house. The idea being that you get to know people and you find out all about them. And, you know, you talk about the bears or you talk about the weather or you talk about whatever you're going to talk about. And you, you get to know people and respect people. And then, especially then, when you go to make decisions, there's this sense of respect. And when you disagree, it comes from a place of respect. The, this is purposeful, our togetherness. And it's been my experience after 12 years on this court that um, it works. And has everyone historically participated in this these living quarters? Has anyone lived off campus or any of that? Or? Not that I know. Not okay. that I know. Now, there are times. Like um, today, we had five oral arguments. And um, it's been a couple of busy days for me. Uh, so instead of having lunch with my colleagues, I didn't take a break. I had a Zoom with my clerks in Chicago so we could talk about the cases and talk about the opinions and that kind of thing. So I took a, 
I felt, an appropriate work break from <laughs> my, my colleagues. But um, in about uh, an hour, I have to go upstairs and have dinner with my friends. So I have to ask, is there, do you share cooking or is the food prepared? <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, the food's prepared. We have a staff. Um, uh, and I, I like to cook a lot. And um, our, uh, the uh, uh, supervisor uh, who does most of the cooking is named Mary White, W-I-G-H-T. Uh, and her challenge is to cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner for seven people with different tastes. <laughs> you know, not everybody likes, uh, you know, spicy uh, whatever, <laughs> Mexican food or something. Um, it tends to be pretty straightforward. Last night we had tilapia and rice and broccoli. Um, that's, uh, that's fine. It was lovely. Um, I will tell you a hint, though, that when I go home, the first thing I do is I try to find some ethic spicy food. <laughs> okay. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, piece of uh, what it means to be on the Illinois Supreme Court that you learn when that, uh, the traditions of dinner, including where everyone sits, um, and uh, that we wait until the chief comes to start our uh, salads. Um, um, uh, at the end of the day, though, I, I believe... Uh, that ex- those experiences are meaningful, are very meaningful. In her inauguration speech the day before our interview, Tice characterized government institution as in a time of crisis. We spoke for a bit about that and what it means and how she, as the new chief justice, could work to counteract those trends. So I did want to touch on one of the comments you made in your speech, the main most important indicator of whether people will accept what happens to them in court is if they believe they've been treated fairly. The perception of fairness is what holds us together. Our communities, our court system, the rule of law, and our democracy, we are in a time of crisis, you had said. Where do you think or what do you think is is breaking down that's created a time of crisis? Let me start by saying that um, I'm talking about very specific studies. Um, uh, A researcher named Tom Tyler from Yale has been doing a great deal of work since about 1985 on this issue, Um, study after study. Um, Additionally, the National Center for State Courts has, has done a great deal of study on this issue of the public's trust and confidence. In fact, I can tell you, if you go on the National Center for State Courts website, they have a whole section of articles about trust and confidence, the public's trust and confidence. So this is, uh, you know, as, as I tried to say yesterday, these are not just nice words. Um, the, 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 the social science shows us that when people don't trust, then they don't believe they have to follow the law. They don't have to do what they've been ordered to do by the courts. And that's really, really destructive. People walk away from the courts and say, they can't tell me what to do. Uh, When the court has tried to enter into the crisis of people's lives, the cases they bring to to the court, um, uh, that that we're here to resolve disputes peaceably. And if people are not accepting what we do, what happens to that peace? So these are not just my ideas. These are ideas that have been talked a, a great deal about. And um, that um, judges talk about all the time. Chief Justice Roberts 
spoke in the same terms not long ago. Now, I added in the Yale study, and I added in Alexander Hamilton, but over and over again, you're going to see judges like me and others, and Chief Justice John Roberts, using the same kind of language about the people's trust and confidence. So I was very direct yesterday. We've been through an election when we had television ads over and over again telling the public that judges act as partisans. They are political players, um, that uh, they're making decisions based on the party rather than uh, the issues in the case. And that's a crisis because that leads to people not to believe in the uh, impartiality and integrity of the court. And how, what is your role then in counteracting that perception? Our court, not just the Supreme Court, all of the courts of Illinois are committed to some really basic principles. First of all, the um, judicial code of conduct, the ethical rules for judges, the very first rule says that a judge must conduct him or herself in a manner that promotes the public's trust and confidence and the impartiality and integrity of the judiciary. So this is an ethical obligation to not just be fair, but to communicate that to the people and to build trust. And in this moment where we fear we're losing that trust, then we have to act. So there, there are ideas that we talk about a lot about how um, we um, communicate, or what I say, demonstrate procedural fairness. So in other, in other words, the, the idea being that it's not just are we fair, I'm in my mind thinking I'm doing the right thing, this is the right thing to do, but how do we communicate that to people? So we have these ideas about allowing, making sure that everyone who comes into our courtrooms has an opportunity to be heard, just have a chance to speak. We want to be very clear that there's a consistent application of legal principles and that as decisions are made, they're transparent. So the litigants can understand that decisions are being made not because of who they are, the political parties of the judges, but because of the cases. Here's an idea. Here's an ex uh, example. Let's say there's a case, and um, a unrepresented person files a case, and the uh, defendant says, "Motion to dismiss. This violates the statute of limitations." Well, a judge can say, "Oh, okay, M uh, case dismissed," or the judge could take about thirty seconds and say, "Mr. Plaintiff, you file this case." Here's the statute book that has all the laws about your case. This law book says you have to file your case within two years. You filed too late. I have no choice. I have to follow the law. I have to dismiss your case. It's that kind of thing of how do we explain to people what we're doing, that we're people of good faith, that we're relying on the law. We have to go the extra mile to explain to people not just that we think we're being fair, but make sure that when they walk out the door, they believe that. As the justice just noted, Illinois Supreme Court elections play out on partisan lines, with a lot of dark money spent and television ads aired highlighting the judges in a context of partisanship. To Tice, that's problematic and not emblematic of the seriousness with which high court justices approach their work. We discuss that in the High Court's Rules and Guidelines for Judicial Conduct, 
which also applies to candidates. How is it that the codes of conduct relate to a partisan election? I ran for the Supreme Court 10 years ago in a partisan election. I was just retained in a retention election, yes or no, about a week ago. So I am not unfamiliar with dealing with a political campaign. There's also a Supreme Court Rule 67, another uh, ethical rule that um, uh, provides what judges can and cannot do when they're running for office. I'll tell you what I did. I don't know if I use the word ad nauseum, but um, when I campaigned, in every statement I made, I cited Rule 62 and said it's the judge's highest ethical obligation to promote the public's trust and confidence and the impartiality and integrity of the judiciary. My campaign was to say to people, you should choose me because you will find that I am someone who will take the bench of the Illinois Supreme Court and hold to the highest ideals. That doesn't sound like a soundbite, but I got elected twice saying that. So I guess in Rule 67, is it an enforceable rule or is it just sort of something where you'd say you'd be better, best suited to obey this and to fall within those lines? Uh, the Illinois Constitution creates a very, um, well, it is one of a kind uh, system of judicial discipline. Uh, the Constitution creates an independent system of a judicial inquiry board where when complaints are made, that board uh, investigates to determine whether or not there is enough to charge a judge uh, with a violation of any of the rules. And if the judicial inquiry board does in fact file a charge, it does so not with the Supreme Court, but with an independent body called the Courts Commission. And the Courts Commission's decisions are not reviewable at the Supreme Court. What the Courts Commission does is the end of the story. And the Constitution gives the Courts Commission, this new independent body, the authority to sanction a judge, um, uh, suspend a judge without pay, to remove a judge. In other words, here's a judge who's been elected. If the Courts Commission finds that, that judge has violated any of the Supreme Court rules on judicial conduct, the Courts Commission can remove that elected judge, and that's the end of the story. can't be reviewed by anybody. So our system, our Constitution, has a very um, strong system of enforcement. And if I can circle back, there's a reason why. Because the founders of our Constitution, our framers, were very concerned about judicial integrity. This was an issue that was very high on their mind at the time. I can tell you that in the late 60s, there was an investigation of corruption by two Illinois Supreme Court justices. By the time the Constitution was framed in 1970, the framers wanted to make sure that judges who fail in their obligations would be removed, that there would be authority to discipline judges to the, that great extent without any meddling from any other body. We're unusual in that. Most states do not have that. In most states, the Supreme Court can overrule whatever kind of disciplinary system that they have. Uh, but not so in Illinois. We have a very strong disciplinary system. 
under the Constitution. And you said those complaints could be filed by attorneys or just by anyone. anyone. Okay. Anyone can write a letter. Anyone can make a phone call. Uh, if you like, there's on the uh, their websites. There's both a website for the Judicial Inquiry Board and there's a website for the Courts Commission. I'll tell you why I'm sharing in a minute, but um, that tells you how to file a complaint against a judge. Okay. And does it also apply if the person, the candidate, is not a judge? The rules, the Supreme Court rules, say that judicial candidates must comply with the same rules as a, a sitting judge. The question is how to discipline someone. The whole system I just described to you of the Courts Commission is specifically about disciplining sitting judges. So someone who is a candidate for judge but who violates the rules can't go, will not be brought before the Courts Commission. On the other hand, we have a very strong disciplinary system for lawyers. So a complaint like that could be brought against a, a candidate who's a lawyer to the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Committee. They have the authority to, to um, sanction a lawyer, and including for a violation of the Code of Judicial Conduct. So, so you've, you've made reference to political ads. What goes through your mind when you see an ad making some of the attacks that we've seen in the last two or three months? Angry. Breaks my heart. Because um, I know it's not true. When Tice and I spoke, she'd read my coverage from the day prior on her inauguration. She said she liked a photo I took, but she had one complaint that I'd referred to the justices in the captions of the photos by their party. In that photo were Tice, her family, and Justice Michael Burke, a Republican incumbent who lost his election to O'Brien last month. He could be seen in the photo sharing a laugh with the new chief, who is a Democrat. For Tice, I quickly learned partisanship is a bad word. And it's not something that the court even considers, she said. And, and I'll saw on that note, I saw you sharing the lighthearted moments with Justice Burke, which we spoke about when you came in. Um, tell me about how the relationships sort of transcend, transcend partisanship, which I now understand you view as a dirty word. He's a White Sox fan. <laughs> Good. I've grown up in the shadows of Wrigley Field. We have very different ideas about things like that. There is no partisanship, unless you want to say sports partisanship. So that's going to do it for this week's Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. You can follow our state government coverage at capitalnewsillinois.com, and you can read more on the Illinois Supreme Court at illinoiscourts.gov. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>